Welcome to the Good Clinical Podcast presented by ACRO. For ACRO, I'm Robert Siegel. The National Institutes of Health describes good clinical practice, or GCP, as a set of international guidelines. These guidelines help to assure the safety, integrity, and quality of clinical trials. ACRO's Good Clinical Podcast draws upon these GCP standards to present a series of conversations conversations about how the clinical research industry aims to make trials better for patients. These conversations with industry leaders shine a spotlight on hot topics in clinical research, from recruiting more diverse populations into trials to using technologies that can reduce the burdens on trial participation. ACRO's GCP brings together some of the sharpest minds in clinical research to discuss how innovation can help us build better trials. Now to our host, Sophia McLeod. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to GCP. I'm your host, Sophia McLeod, and today I'm joined by three excellent guests who sat down with me to discuss the current state and future of clinical trials in the UK. Lord James O'Shaughnessy is the former Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Department of Health and current senior partner at New Market Strategy. Alistair McDonald is the former CEO of Cineos Health, a previous ACRO board chair and currently serves as an operating partner at GHO Capital. And finally, Leona Fitzgerald is the executive director of regulatory affairs at ACRO member PPD, part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. On today's episode, Lord O'Shaughnessy walks us through his report on clinical trials in the UK, which was issued in May, and we take some time to dive into various aspects of the report of particular interest to ACRO members, including MHRA approval timelines and the modernization of the industry. Enjoy. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Uh, We're really excited to have you all here to talk a bit about what we see as driving clinical trials in the UK forward, what we need to be doing what problems we need to be solving, you know, how we can work together um, as industry and government. So with that, I'd like to kind of pivot quickly to our icebreaker question that we like to ask everyone who comes on GCP. And that is, what does good clinical practice mean to you? So maybe Leona, we'll start with you first. Yeah, thanks, Sophia. Um, I think good clinical practice is about leveraging the best control and processes that you have to generate appropriate clinical research and give access to patients to the medicines and devices that they need with a view of also thinking about the future and what can we adapt and evolve towards you know to to make sure we're using the up-to-date most scientific methodology you know as as we progress through clinical research. Fabulous. Alistair maybe we'll turn to you next. Yeah sure well, I'm glad Leona had to go first it's always uh... You always dodge a bullet that way. Uh, for me, I, you know, I started in GMP, so I just think of I just think of in the same ways as GMP. You you can't you know teach a, a, an old dog new tricks, right? So for me, it's really making sure that patient safety, um, the right ethics, the right kind of technology is there to help us detect and uh, ensure that any patients that we bring into clinical trial arena are are safe and that the you know that the the standards uh, that we keep in there are designed to not only make sure that we can deliver innovative medicines that we fully think through the impacts of that and keep those people safe. 
Perfect. And Lord O'Shaughnessy, I'm going to have you sort of wrap it all up in a nice bow for us. I'll do my best. I mean, of course, safety comes first, um, as well as trying to understand um, what kind of framework and environment allows innovation to come through in a way that's that's accessible and safe and so on. But I, I would take a slightly different angle about it, which is good clinical practice is ultimately about fulfilling the needs of patients. And actually, patients have a right to access research. So that doesn't mean they have the right to be on a given trial because, of course, you know, inclusion, exclusion criteria and so on. But the idea of research needs to be more central to the concept of direct care. Um, And that's not so much a kind of regulatory perspective, but more one about just practically speaking, how do we embed the idea of research as being part of care in that kind of clinical patient relationship? And then put in place everything around it that that makes that a more achievable thing on average, you know, for your average patient over time. Fantastic. That was great. Thank you all for indulging us on our our little (laughs) icebreaker section. But let's get into the real reason why we're here today. Um, Obviously, Lord O'Shaughnessy, you have recently released a report on the state of clinical trials in the UK and sort of, you know, what we need to be thinking about to improve things going forward. So I was just wondering if to kick us off, you could walk us through, you know, the process of compiling the report and, you know, hit a few of the highlights for us. Uh, thank you. I'll do my best. So um, the, the, the report was predicated on some data from the ABPI that showed a significant decline in commercial clinical trial activity over a five year period from 2017 onwards. Um, and the important thing here is that it predates COVID. So a lot of what you know, it's going on in the health system, in life sciences, in the economy more generally, of course, is about recovery from the pandemic. But this is a problem that was emerging beforehand. And this decline means that in the UK, we've gone from about 5% of total clinical trial activity down to 2% being industry sponsored. Um, meanwhile, the, 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 the sort of academic and, and health driven um, trials have maintained at about the same level. So it's something specific there, which has an outsized importance because, um, of course, it means fewer um, patients get access to innovative medicines. Those tend to be late stage trials, of course, so at that stage, we kind of know they work. It's all about effect size and for whom. And there's a direct cost to the NHS because that is care that would otherwise need to be paid for by the taxpayer. And of course, there's an impact to kind of UK PLC. So I think everyone agreed while it was a small slither in a way of the total size of the clinical trial um, pie, um, it it had sort of outsized importance and something that we needed to do something about. And critically, it's something that industry said to the UK, you need to do better if you're going to be competitive, if you're going to be a science superpower. So hence the commission to carry out the research which came from the uh, Life Sciences Council. Uh, Rapid um, consultation with dozens of folks from industry, from CROs, from pharma, biotech, uh, digital, medtech, as well as the public sector regulators, academics and others to try and get to the bottom of of what's going on. And uh, we ended up setting that out in eight problem statements that kind of you know, if you wanted to view them positively, they would be conditions of success. But I thought it was better to put them bluntly, as in, if we don't sort these out, then we are going to continue languishing. Meanwhile, other countries, Spain, Poland, Australia, you name it, um, are out to eat our lunch. So um, it's not, we can't, we can't just sit still. Um, it will get worse unless we actively try and make it better. Um, and so switch quickly to just the kind of high level um, recommendations. I mean, the first, frankly, is that addressing the fact it takes so long to set up a trial here. Um, compared to other countries. We had two data points um, given to us by Global Pharma in the 
report, one of which was um, out of 18 countries where this pharma company was doing trials in, in Europe, the UK was the second slowest. And another company said, well, we have a similar experience. And as a consequence, the UK only gets half the um, allocations for trial participants compared to peer group countries of a similar size. So France, Italy and Germany and so on. So that kind of sums up the problem, really. Now, it's got different components, capacity and um, performance at the regulators, particularly the MHRA, uh, which has um, had a great COVID, but has kind of retrenched and retreated a bit since. Um, the bureaucracy, the lack of single mandatory and comprehensive contracting and costing, for example. Um, the lack of good data about which um, sites are performing well and which don't, uh, which trials are available so that clinicians and patients have a better idea and can pull them through. And so there's lots of recommendations that are about trying to deal with that kind of low, slow and low problem. There's another set of recommendations which are about, as I mentioned, about sort of accountability and trying to create the right incentives on clinicians and people within the NHS. And then I think there's something really important about data, about both how we join up the data of patients once they're in trial so that we really take advantage of, of our data assets and can provide that deep phenotyping and now genotyping of patients who are in trials, which is obviously an incredibly um, rich opportunity that the UK has, but also that we can prospectively um, or industry can prospectively approach um, uh, patients to take part in trials without having to go through endless kind of information governance hoops that they they never get out of. And I think that one for me is really important because, you know, my background is politics and policymaker politician, not a researcher or a clinician. So I think about the sort of public, as it were, and what we want is demand. Right? If we create demand, then we will make the changes needed to pull all that through. And so for all the kind of technical changes to regulation and policy and funding and infrastructure and data and so on, I think trying to motivate patients to ask for it, to be demanding for me, more research, more opportunities to take part in clinical trials is going to be a critical part of it too. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. That was a very thorough overview. I wonder before if we turn to some of our, you know, main topics of interest, if either Alice or Leona, if you just had some, you know, initial reactions to the report um, or anything you want to mention before we really dig into some specific topics. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's a comprehensive, uh, you know, it's a comprehensive uh, picture of what's really happening at the moment. So from that perspective, I think that's a really positive step for us to have made. I think they, they picked the right person to lead that through with James's experience and history in this space. So, you know, I think the, the statement of the industry is, is kind of well made in that document. And we've, we've been really pushing on this. And you know, Sophia, from ACRO uh, kind of experience along with myself, that the first time we really looked at this and, and, and thought about, well, how can we really put some pressure on in the UK to push this agenda forward? There was when Brexit raised its ugly head on the horizon right so how do we how do we become a better clinical trial landscape as uk plc right if if and I, you, you will have heard me say this a thousand times severe that you know if if you were given a blank piece of paper right now and put all the ingredients together for a geographical location for a clinical trial superpower you'd draw the uk small geographically very diverse population we don't really take that good care of ourselves in the UK. So we've got a bit of a sick, uh, you know, sickly population. We've got, we've got a perfect profile for it. I'll say the words a thousand times. It's probably an understatement, but I've talked to customers in the past about, you know, don't worry about the UK logistics. We'll, we'll bring patients to the site. It's not that difficult here. You know, it's not like the US where you're flying people four or 5,000 miles across one country. We can drive people a hundred miles and pretty much cover the whole lot. So 
Okay, maybe a little bit more. But you know that I think I think the statement of intent in that document is really good. It lays it out. Um, it lays out the fact that we are missing out a huge opportunity, and I'm really glad that it incorporates access to uh, you know uh, groundbreaking medicines for people. Because for me, you know that that's that's a piece that a lot of people miss. Is okay. Here comes big pharma. They want to get their foot in the door. They want to you know use people as guinea pigs. Whatever you get, you know, you get the usual rhetoric around clinical trials. But but people don't remember that. A, access to great new experimental medicines that can be life-changing or life-saving for people. Plus, there is a monetary aspect to it. And if people in the country want the NHS to operate, to work, to... My daughter started a job in the NHS today, God bless her. You know, if people want the NHS to keep moving forward and have the capabilities that they need on a day-to-day basis, we've got to maximise the use of the assets of the NHS, which includes clinical research because we know that the outcomes for patients are better we know the outcomes in those centers that are engaged in research are better and that's not just uk uk data that's everywhere and as james said you know when we're getting <laughs> when we've got worse bureaucracy and slower timelines than countries like france and germany and i say that from the fact of having to get trials up and running in those locations we really are falling behind at that point I, you know, we'll come on to this, I, I guess, in a bit. But, you know, the questions for me are around some of the government response to it. I'm a little bit surprised how the funding is allocated to different buckets. Um, when you think about it from like a pro- process flow and timing perspective. Um, but, you know, my my initial reaction to the report was great. It's 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 to the point. It, it identifies the real issues at a macro level and in some detail. And I, and I think that's what we need. We need people in the UK in the, you know, in government, in the NHS to look at this and say, okay, okay, we, we have a huge opportunity. We're great at academic stuff. You know, I sit on the board of um, a catapult that, that is, was basically founded to try and stop the brain drain of, of biologics and new molecules discovered here in the UK to the US by supplying technology. So we are an incredible academic, um, you know, early stage, research and development location and then we turn we turn it we you know we almost turn our cheek to the later phase development and i find that really odd i think the two go really well hand in hand hand in hand and most countries are you know good at both we we've never really we've never really grasped the nettle on the on the on the late phase stuff so leona thank you now you make some really really good points uh, i agree with what you said um I think the report does highlight the main larger areas or levers that need to be pulled to change the environment. Um, You know, it is about patient access. It is about education to all stakeholders, really, you know, with the the patient being the first one. What is it? What does it mean? And how do we um, bring those people together to, to get the right medicine and, you know, improve the life of the patient and as you were saying it's it should be easier more um, effective to deliver that kind of research in a smaller country with independent means of of processing and approving and um, monitoring those uh, trials once they start so I think it's is identifying we have a great opportunity 
how we then move forward is going to be really interesting because I think, yeah, you're right. Where Where is the budget going to go? How do we make sure that we are um, making the right things happen in the right spaces? And, um, you know, thinking about academia, but also industry, because as you progress through to the larger patient populations, um, typically you are then working with a more industry level sponsor than an academic level sponsor just from a scale perspective so remembering that if we're to make this maximize the, the patient access component it will be a partnership between academia and industry to make that happen yeah absolutely so to dig in i think to some of our um topics of interest we'll call them um i think for us at acro uh the biggest area of concern would be approval timelines. So I think we'll start there yeah. maybe for this conversation. Um, it's laid out pretty plainly in the report. Um, and we at ACRO have also been compiling some numbers on MHRA backlogs. So I think we're all pretty aware of the situation. But I'm wondering, um, and this is a question for everyone, you know, what do you think really needs to be done to improve these numbers? I think if we you know, don't, if they're not improved, it's one of those things where we could talk about, it'd be great if we could enroll X number of patients within X number of years, but if we can't get these timelines down, I think that part might not matter to be super bl blunt about it. But yeah, I would just love to kind of get a reaction from all of you on sort of what you think really yeah. needs to be done here to push forward on this. I mean, Alistair and Neona are the real experts on this. So um, we'll see if what I'm about to say brings true, but hopefully it does because you know, obviously, this is based on contributions from from um, from the you know industry, the the CROs, the CACRO, of course, themselves, and so on. So, I mean, the first one, and to be honest, it was the most consistent response from everybody, was just a, not that HRA performance, which people seem broadly satisfied, but was with AR, a, MHRA performance, particularly the timelines around um, protocol amendments and and so on. Not not only, but in general, just being far too long and unresponsive. I mean, that almost sounds overly simplistic, but I think if you look at the, the organization, what's happened to it since the kind of peak COVID, both in terms of its scale and also its expertise, they've lost a lot of good people. Unfortunately, it is, it is not capable of performing at the level it needs to in this area, right? And that's just the kind of blunt truth of it. So we need to rebuild that expertise. And um, it is, of course, has set itself now a target of improving its own performance even before my review was published. But it now needs to go much further and to, to deliver, deliver the kind of world-leading times that you get, and we heard endlessly, you know, in Spain, for example, right? And with that singular approach, that for the bits of the process which they control, the HRA and the MHRA, that they are deliver, delivering genuinely world-leading performance. So that's, if you like, the kind of top-down bit. The bottom-up element of it was more around... <laughs> In some ways, it betrays a kind of similar mindset, but was coming from more from the bottom up, which is any trial is likely to have multiple sites. Those sites, in theory, are all operating the same kind of businesses, NHS trusts, and they should be prepared to accept the same kind of paperwork to the same kind of standards. But even though you've got this national contracting framework, in reality, it's used in less than half of cases. And in almost no cases, it's used consistently across every site. So you've got multiple costings going on. You've got multiple um, due diligence happening each time one of these um, a site is set up. Uh, and indeed, the framework itself doesn't co cover certain aspects of what's required to set up a uh, trial anyway. So it's kind of missing links 
um, e even if it was completely used. And so you get this kind of, you know, somebody described it as like the bureaucratic undergrowth, right, which just gets in the way. And of course, that's a really awful thing. If you're a hard press clinician, you're dealing with the day-to-day frontline stuff, trawling your way through, hacking your way through this stuff, it's just dreadful. I mean, it's just so off-putting. So you've got that combination of, oh, the UK looks really slow from the top, you know, from the industry sponsors coming in. And from underneath, it's like, oh, my gosh, I could be doing so much more interesting work than find, signing yet another form or waiting for this amendment to come through all the rest of it. And the combination of those, now, what proportion of the problem that amounts to, I don't know. But the combination of those is very, very significant in driving people or customers away and deliverers, <laughs> if you want to call it that way, into the sector. And so I genuinely, I do believe that fixing those two, I'm not saying it's easy. I think conceptually, it's not hard to, to work out what's required. Delivering it is another thing. And we should definitely come on to talk about implementation at some point, but um, of all of the recommendations. But I do think that that would deal with, and I'm really looking to Alistair and Leona for their views here, a very significant amount of the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll jump in first then. Um, no, agreed. Uh, we definitely need to have reassurance that there's consistency of resourcing available for these um, assessments of these applications so that the approval timelines can be managed um, back to that timetable that we used to enjoy, you know, pre-COVID pre and, and during COVID, really. I think that's one thing, you know, without that, we are seeing a lot of companies elect not to come to the UK because things are a lot slower. There's no um, reassurance that the, the approval will be in place, that the site could be contracted and that you can screen a patient before other countries have finished screening and actually the study is ready to close. So I think we will see um, competition at the moment, you know, the US, Australia, other countries where there's a much simpler process are gaining the re the research at, out, you know outside of the UK. So I think for sure the approval timeline needs to be managed and how we then work with the sites to get them up and running and um, continuously reviewing their patients and bringing the right patients in because I think what we've seen in the past as well is sites may get up and running and then they may only screen two or three patients and then they go you know perhaps dormant for a while either because uh, there's a lot of activity at the site that's competing with their resources or potentially, as you were saying, the design of the study does not lend itself well to the kind of patients they would see. And then you're waiting for those amendments to go through to try and improve um, the access for the right kind of patient. Uh, yeah, I, I, can, I completely agree with that, Leona. I think, you know, my experience certainly saw towards you know a trend pre-covid as well not 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 just since but more and more amendments coming through more dynamic trial not, not more dynamic trial designs but more dynamic trial execution and delivery which meant that you know you'd see multiple amendments coming through in a trial and if if you're just not very good at processing them like we haven't been in the uk it's just throwing sand in the gears every time you find a gear there's a problem right you've got another amendment, another amendment coming through and it derails it and you lose that momentum and i think there are a few things when i think about good execution of clinical trials great protocol is essential 
but we just don't get that very often anymore. They're just so complicated and so deep now. But then it's that momentum that you get at the start of a trial. If you can get a site up and running, all documents in place without wearing them, without wearing them down completely, then you do get engagement from the site. And we know that that engagement is critical for that investigator or that site coordinator to engage the right patients and get that flow going. And we see that country after country after country where there is a shorter, more simple approval process for the trial because they're not worn out by the end of that, that process. And the worst thing that can happen anywhere in the world is for a site to go through all that expense and time and effort and then get told the trial's over just as they, just as they get up and running. So we have to bear all that in mind as we, as we see a redesign, if you like, of, the, of this regulatory framework that we have. And for me, again, it, trials flow like water. They take the path of least resistance. If you get countries that open, the, where patients start to come in, that's where all the effort gets poured in. And that's where you go back the next time. And I think we've got to, we've got to make these, we've got to change these processes, make them more simple, make them more agile. And then we've got to make an impact though, as UK PLC in the space. I don't, I think these are all the right things to do but we've kind of got to make an impact to get people's attention back on the UK. And then, you know, then we've got to push from there because we did do that. It was called COVID and everybody, all my customers were, were like, great, the UK's doing this stuff in incredibly rapid times. The high throughput centers were throwing, you know, COVID patients were quite easy to pick out, I guess though. So, you know, we got good, en good enrollment from that. But the high throughput centers that we, you know, worked on a few years ago, they they you know carried a big part of the burden because they were set up to do it with the right resources and i think if we can make an impact on the regulatory framework by changing these processes and getting the speed back into the front end of our process if we fall down because the sites don't have the resources to execute the trial that comes through after that we've just shifted the we've shifted kind of the nexus of the problem just one step backwards and i think we have to be careful to make sure that as we do this as we unjam these, you know, log jams, that we don't just run straight into the next one, because you know we're only going to get one shot at this to to bring back the attention of the of the farmers, you know, of the late stage development folks. So, so just on that last point, um, one of the things I found interesting was the extent to which you would think what were pretty clear financial incentives for trust to do more activity just didn't seem to bite, mm -hmm. um, and. And not even a trust level. You even heard stories of trusts leaving unclaimed income, which they were entitled to for carrying out trial activity. Right? I mean, yeah. sort of. I mean, it's kind of inexcusable, really. But of course, it works on more than one level. Right? So the trust's got to want to do it. They've got to see yeah. clear financial incentive. And I think again, carrots and sticks are required to to make that bite. But then. Actually, it's interesting when you get down to the unit level. We one of the suggestions that somebody we were we were toying with the extent to which you would want to go to pure direct financial incentives to doctors, nurses, and so on, i.e., into individual salaries, which you know yes. more US style. And there was a sense in which that that just wouldn't land well in the NHS or even frankly probably in a European context. It's just not quite how we do things. But the suggestion was that actually creating something called someone called it a PI box. Which is a sense which you have a budget, almost like a little PL, which sits with your unit. And if you bring in income and you create margin, then some of that, some portion of that talks about, you know, a rule of thumb of a third, a third, a third, but it could, you know, it could be anything, 
sits with your unit and you get to spend it on that clinical research nurse or that you know additional IT platform that helps you generate you know patient reported outcome measures or what it doesn't matter whatever it is so that these become little enterprises um, mm -hmm. in their own right that, that actually succeed um, when they succeed they're able to generate the, 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 the uh, seeds of more success and that felt actually sort of very simplistic again slightly in a way but, but but the sense in which so much of what goes on in the funding of this area is very opaque no one really has a very good idea what trials are going on where I mean flabbergastingly given we spend 350 million pounds a year in England through the NIHR um, let alone you know the fact is this this whole review was predicated on ABPI data it's not even public data Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of um, there's a lack of transparency, and because there's a lack of transparency, that contributes to poor incentives and poor accountability. And you can't run any system on that basis. So some of this stuff is not actually peculiar to particular to clinical trials. It's just how you yeah. run a good uh, quasi public service or you know whatever we want to call this. And part of that is making sure that people who do well are rewarded. And are yeah. able to thrive rather than you know sort of stymied, which I think is yeah. what happens a lot at the moment. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think just from my kind of general business experience, I think it often goes better when the effort and the reward end up in the pay in the same um, you know P and L, the same cost center, whatever however you want to think of that, because that that for me creates that incentive and, it, and, it, and if you think about the kind of people that work in the nhs overall right they're often altruistic they're they're in healthcare because something you know maybe happened in their past they've gone at a, an interest in it but for them to see that there's a, a strong connection between the work that they do every day the effort that they put in every day to get a clinical trial up and running and the money that comes through from that is one aspect obviously one aspect is a better outcome hopefully for the patients that they're treating so they get to see that part but also here you know these are the finances that come along with that and you can reinvest that money into that trial center now there's spillover obviously into into other areas because as those trial centers get more active they bring in different therapeutic areas maybe they start in oncology or cns or somewhere like that you know, we've seen this multiple times, I think, in commercial scenarios outside of the UK, where people start to realize, well, I'm good at this, I can then move into this therapeutic area, we need to bring in some specialty, either from, you know, and we worked obviously in large university hospitals across the world, where when people see that success, they want to then align their um, specialty to it as well, and want to give resources and, and try and attract trials. So. I think that's a bit longer term, but I think that that incentive part, I, I, I agree with you. I'm not sure I would go down to an individual level, but I would make sure that those doing the work in that center see that benefit early because that would just encourage more of the same behavior. And if we can get it rolling, we can get those patients engaged through those centers in, and, in, and then into broader and broader. You know, I think um, in, the, in the report, the request for CTANs, if you think of it as almost breaking them down into individual sites that make up the CTAN, that enables us to, you know, drive that good behavior and drive a broader approach once people see success in a certain therapeutic area or in their specialty. I wonder if we might want to also think about where we go with 
sort of the modernization of clinical trials as we're moving forward. You know, we saw a lot through COVID um, in terms of how, you know, decentralized clinical trials, which we've talked about for years, can really actually, you know, work in the right situation. Um, we're hearing a lot of conversations about the use of AI in both protocols throughout trials in the regulatory space. Um, I'm wondering how you all think about that within the context of the UK. Obviously, we've seen um, some guidance from EMA on DCTs. The FDA is starting to move on this. The FDA also recently put out um, an RFI and discussion paper on AI. The US Congress is really interested in it. You know, we're seeing it kind of starting to pop up all over. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious on how you guys, you know, see the need for um, some action here on in the UK. So I think they're all tools that we need to be very open to. Um, and I think at, at the moment, as we look at our regulatory framework here in the UK, is this an opportunity for us to have a radical redesign of it and make it a completely digitized uh, process, which, you know, I don't, I don't think is, it would be a rapid evolution of what we have rather than a revolution, right? So, but I do think that people, if I'm, if I'm a clinical trial subject, and I know the whole regulatory review has been done by AI, mm. I'm not sure I'm overly comfortable with that, you know, and, and maybe it's because I'm old and don't or overly trust all technology. But, you know, I think there needs to be a strong human element. And so I look at AI, et cetera, as something as a tool that we should be very open to because it can crunch all the data. It can do all the scenarios, blah, 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 and then present that for review. Decentralized trials for me are again, just another tool to execute a trial. For me, I think the future of trials is a hybrid. We would have sites, you know, the, the, the usual kind of setup that maybe, uh, you know, more of a community-based arm and then maybe a decentralized arm because it just creates better accessibility and it depends on the therapy as well, right? So um, I think it's a good tool for the right situation, but not always. And I think the industry galloped away with itself a couple of years ago and said, you know, CROs dead this decentralization is here and well it didn't quite pan out like that so you know i think they're a great tool we should be open to it we should be open to looking at that whole landscape there shouldn't be any kind of uh, sacred cows in this it should be you know what's the best process going forward that gives us the right balance between speed um effective review the right ethics reviews etc cetera, etc cetera. because that mm. that that balance for me and also, you know, can help with the resources. You know, the MHRA stuck for resources, CROs are stuck for resources, farmers stuck for resources. So how do we take that, some of that burden down, make the process simpler and more rapid? I think you've got to be open to those tools. Yeah, I think it, you're right. It's definitely about reducing burden via um, automation where it makes sense to. But also, how do you how do you connect all of your data systems so that you're at you're, what you're looking at is the complete picture, because I think, as um, Lord O'Shaughnessy was saying earlier, there's so many discrete, it's very separate. There's so many things that we just don't know what's happening because it's not linked, it's not transparent. How does that work? You know, what could we do, whether it's AI or something else, to bring that connection about so that it is it, the information is available. It can then be accessed. It can then be reviewed. Um, and what will that then mean from a capability to spring forward? Um, I agree, probably it's more evolution than revolution right now. And um, I think as part of that education platform to bring everybody along with the ideas at the same time, 
it will take some careful messaging because yeah people people are worried that overuse of ai or automation is is not reassuring it you know it, it's it's probably even and and i think that that's a little bit what we've seen and perhaps the uh, pandemic situation added to this with decentralized trials most people don't want a 100% remote situation. They want to be able to actually sit in front of somebody and really get time with a person rather than it being a virtually conducted visit. So um, the hybrid element is, I think, probably here to stay at least for the next foreseeable many years. Um, will it evolve again? I think if it does, it will be because there's a different technology um connection to make that happen compared to what we have right now yeah I, I would agree with that absolutely um but i think there is huge opportunity here and there clearly is a lot of innovation going on what we haven't really established yet is what are what is the gold standard in the area of decentralized trials such that the data that they produce can be considered as the same regulatory standard as traditional trials if we want to call them that um, and that in itself is not a um, small task to establish that because mm -hmm. you know there are obviously many many dimensional many dimensions to doing that. Nevertheless, I think if a regulator, as the FDA is obviously moving towards the EMA, is shortly about to publish the MHRA, I've recommended to publish its own guidelines. But ideally, all regulators can see can um, stringent regulators could create a common consensus about what equivalence looks like. That in itself could have a tremendous effect in, in galvanizing the sector because, you know, I meet lots and lots of people, clinicians, researchers, businesses, startups and large, um, uh, who are really thinking very carefully about what to do in this field and how to sort of unlock this hybrid model. I think hybrid model is the right one. So actually with the right target to aim for, I think we could see some really rapid and exciting change here, which would bring trials to potentially a lot more people because it, they would be more accessible, uh, not completely automated, um, but they would be more accessible. And I think this brings us to sort of a larger conversation about the role of patients in research and how we really work with patients going forward. When you think about sort of the DCT and AI of it all, you guys, I think all touched on this, but patients have different comfortability levels with technology. Not everyone is going to be super excited to use an e-diary even, you know, some stuff that seems basic to a lot of us, but some people are, don't really know how to do that. So it kind of leads to a lot of larger questions. But I was wondering, you know, thinking about, we talked about data and how, you know, there is a wealth of data and it's really about how we leverage it, how we make it transparent, how do we utilize it more effectively? If we think about that for finding patients or engaging with patients, getting the word out about trials, you know, to the right patients in the right settings, I think this is probably 10 questions I'm asking you in one, but um, really just wanting to kind of get your thoughts on how we engage with patients in a meaningful way going forward and, you know, treat them as partners in research and not just sort of guinea pigs that we need for this trial. And then it's kind of goodbye forever. Yeah, I think it's a good question. You're right, Sophia. It's 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 a thousand questions in one question. Right? <laughs> so for that, I think in the UK, when we saw it in COVID, the, the UK population is as, in my opinion, is is really altruistic, right? They, I mean, I, you know, I've got a household full of people who showed up to to put vaccines in people's arms all the way through COVID, right? So, and many and many many, I think they had to turn volunteers away. So, I, I think there's got to be a drumbeat, and and I think one of the big things about COVID was this drumbeat every night 
and I'm not suggesting we want to see Bojo and some of his friends on the TV every night at six o'clock again for a year. But, you know, there was a need driven from the top. And I think we sh- we missed that in the clinical trial space in the UK that, you know, the only time that people really hear about clinical trials when there's a crisis. So the clinical trial went wrong. You know, the media loves that. And COVID, uh, you know, and that was the headline of item on the news for a year globally so we need that pr from someone on high who's got a trusted reputation in the government to say look we, you know we need access and support for clinical trials i i was fortunate to meet with uh, Theresa may about a month ago to talk about this she was super interested very energetic about it there's a lot of clinical trial uh, company headquarters in her um, constituency so you know that that helps but somebody like that you know somebody who's well known I don't want to say get on a soapbox and start talking about it but it's almost what we need and and maybe it's in public information access to information we've got to get this groundswell of public support for it I'm not you know I'm not a, a communications or marketing expert by any stretch of the imagination but you know we've got to do something around that that takes away any stigma or any uh, well there's no I don't think there's a stigma around clinical trials but you know any kind of mistrust around clinical trials I think we need, we need to take that away and 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 get people engaged with that so and we have you know I think the NHS app is a great yeah. it's a great thing I mean we you know we, it should all Almost be sending notifications. Hey, we know that you're a, you know, you have asthma or whatever. There's a clinical trial. Are you interested? Easy, right? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe easy in my mind. Maybe it's incredibly difficult, but you know, the channel's there almost. We got to work out how we could use that potentially. I think you're right. We need to learn a lot from how <laughs> patient organisations, especially rare disease um, situations, because they have a much better way of pulling together what's available in that space, making it uh, user-friendly for the patient, making the terminology easier to understand. I mean, in in that rare disease setting, I think the the patient, well, everyone's really motivated to to get together and share and and know what's going on. Whereas in, you know, other more prevalent situations, it, it feels like there's too much going on in the space to really, you know, simplify it into something that can be used but I think that yes we've there are ways that organizations do this how do we adapt that to a bigger audience um, and get over the data privacy considerations as well because I think you're right the NHS app, app would be a great starting place or finishing place whatever this whatever the bit in the middle is is what, what we need to find yeah look, I agree with both of you on this I mean I think you can take a stepwise approach and, and I said as much in the review, I think you can use the app as a platform to start informing people and, and make it an opt-in system. And over time, provided you've gone through the right uh, appropriate public engagement and processes and that that is sort of verified, um, that you can then move it to an opt-out system. Um, it's, in 30, it's on 32 million phones, which is kind of amazing, but it does lack a purpose at the moment. And this is definitely one of the purposes. And to be fair, I think this is part of the future product development anyway. So they do want to to make um to, to make the most of it the other one of course is just that kind of those clinical you know the classic clinical conversations that you have and um not that every conversation needs to be turned into a recruiting exercise for a clinical trial obviously that would be totally inappropriate but the idea that research should be just part of what it is to give care and if we're honest about it that is not the culture not in a widespread way not in a kind of generalizable way and lots of reasons why that might be the case and therefore it's not easy to fix 
But having that ambition that it just becomes part of the conversation as part of direct care, I think is important in the long term. So I've got about 10-ish minutes of your time left that I can use you for. So I'm wondering if maybe we pivot to talking a little bit about, um, as you mentioned earlier, Lord O'Shaughnessy implementation and, you know, Mm. where we go from here, what we prioritize, how we really get a really meaningful impact out of this, and then also um, touch a little bit on the government response and sort of what we, uh, some early reactions to that. So um, maybe I'll start with you, Lord O'Shaughnessy, if you want to talk about implementation, where we go from here. Uh, and then we can kind of open it up to the group. Sure. I mean, treat by Alice's question as well, he raised earlier about where the funding's been allocated to and so on. But so there's 27 recommendations and, you know, two of them are ones around kind of putting KPIs on current activity. The second is about, you know, coming up with an implementation report. So there's 25 of which I was asked, which five should um, they crack on with and try and put some money behind it? You know, it's difficult, right? Because you put 25 recommendations together and you've, want them all to hang together and to be implemented as one but then you'll ask which are your favorite children and you have to make some choices so so those five which i uh, which you know we've talked about a bit already but are around funding the mhra the national contracting around patient data the ctans and so on the idea is that they will kind of touch all the different aspects of the problem set and and be implementable quickly 121 million pounds is a significant amount of money that's been allocated to it. So from that point of view, and from the point of view of both the UK government and the four governments of the UK, um, so, you know, reflecting respective NHS, as I've said, they accept all the recommendations and there are plans in place at the moment to pull together the, the people who are going to develop the implementation plan to be delivered by the end of autumn and, and so on. But it takes a lot of energy to even get these things kind of on the agenda and then it's easy for them to slip away when very important issues like nurses strikes or doctor strikes or elective backdoors whatever it is come along so the first thing is the industry has to be incredibly consistent and i mean that in the broader sense from patients to clinicians to in, you know to companies to academics and so on in pushing for it like um for, for implementation so that's that's the first thing the second thing is there are going to be some difficult decisions that need to be made um, for example, around how the NIHR operates as an organisation, which means that that organisation itself is going to have to embrace change. Um, and then the third one is because I'm, I'm guessing also probably quite a lot of your audience is, is industry based. It does, you know, it does take two to tango. We actually do need the life sciences sector to engage in this process itself, which it has done very much so. But take something like national contracting. They are the customer. So there's no point the NHS doing a perfect job of getting its side of things together and coming up with something. It's got to be done in, in tandem. Now, I'm confident that that will happen because I really believe that everyone wants it to happen. And we have all the mechanisms in place, the Life Science Council and, and, and all the rest of it. Of course, the shadow on the horizon is the VPAS negotiations on pricing, um, which was the elephant in the room that I did my best to avoid because um, I couldn't do anything about it in my review. And there's plenty of people thinking about it and worrying about it at the moment but um i suppose you might say that is the biggest worry because if that settlement looks what industry would consider to be bad then are they at the table in order to 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 actually deliver these reforms or to play their part in the delivering reforms around clinical trials alistair leona any any yeah no i think um you know that this this is where the rubber meets the road right in in terms of of making that impact that I talked about is, and I'll and I'll and I'll I'll come on to the comment that I made about how the funding's been split up, James. It for, for me to make that impact. So when I looked through the government response and the and the funding numbers, there's it really surprised me how, how heavily weighted the, the finances are to that 
kind of provision of the real-time data on, on the commercial activity, 81 million pounds. I think industry can tell you where trials are being run and how well they're being run. So I certainly know from my experience, I'm, I'm going to guess the owner has performance knowledge country by country of what sites do well and in, in which therapies and, and you know, in which sub-therapies even. For me, there's four million pounds earmark in combined for the NIHR around the contracting piece. There's 15 million around for contracting, right? And three million for MHRA. And, and I just feel, feel that feels a bit light because I don't think that, I, when I look at the trials in the UK, for me, the, the access to the data wasn't the problem. It's just getting them launched. So it just feels like that MHRA piece, thinking about those staffing levels, may, and maybe the, maybe there's money from a different bucket to, to staff yeah. it back up. In the, so yeah, so I mean, just on that number. point, um, at the last budget, there was, I can't remember what it was now, £10 million allocated in addition to the MHRA on top of what they've got in the spending review. So it is additional to that. Okay. So actually, okay. that is quite, in total, that is quite a significant yeah, increase in MHRA. Okay. But so this is specifically for this purpose rather than general yeah. MHRA okay. um, growth, yeah. which will be growth, which um, is, okay. has been covered elsewhere, yeah. yeah. Um, but you, I mean, your point about the, the, the data flow is a good one. <laughs> I mean, there was a business case, I think, already in, the, in development around this. You know, we'll see, right, when it goes to procurement, what, what's involved with it. You would hope with that amount of money, you'd be able to deliver an outstandingly comprehensive system which captured all the way from sort of phase one to phase four the entire country very you know significant levels of detail about uh, inclusion exclusion criteria genomic profiling participant numbers you know you could imagine and and gathered from all sources right industry trade bodies academia nhs the regulators and trying to create a kind of synoptic view so let's see (laughs) Uh, but it is a significant amount of money i mean that is for sure so it's going to have to be pretty all singing or dancing for for that kind of cash yeah yeah absolutely i mean you know i think that in a way i would look at that as a bit of a cherry on the cake but we kind of got to bake the cake first and that for me that the the spend through the mhra and making sure that we get a contract and like you said it's got to be fit for purpose for both sides customer and solution provider it, those two things if we could do that i think that would unstick 75 percent of the access problems that we have as cro's bringing and you know and pharma companies coming direct you know that that would wash away the log jam that prevents us from bringing trials yeah. to, yeah, to yeah. UK. simple you know simple as well it's not as simple as that right i wish it was but <laughs> You know, I think they're, they're, those are the two things that make people sit and say, mm. I mean, because I've been in hundreds of meetings, didn't say thousands at times, but hundreds of meetings that where a customer has said, what about the UK? And, you know, everybody kind of looks around the table and says, well, you know, yeah, we can do it, but they're not going to be in the first wave of recruitment. That's our goal. That should be our goal as UK PLC, right? To have the UK sitting alongside the US, Australia, Georgia, it's one of those first wave countries where you get a couple of patients coming in, you're proving the concepts of the protocol, you're getting that. And, and they're headline makers. That's what everybody who, who sits behind the, the, the decision to, to run a clinical trial wants to hear, I've got a patient or I've got, you know, yeah. 10 patients. We're, and then the next question is, where are they from? Okay, that'd be great to just say every time, well, we've got, we got our usual 30% from the UK, 30% from the US and, you know, three or four from elsewhere. That would be, that, yeah. that would be Nirvana. That would be Nirvana. And every single, every single executive 
team that I've ever met in the US, biotech, pharma. There's a Brit sitting on that C-suite looking for an excuse to come home. Yeah, and, so true. Yeah. Yeah, go visit the site. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. And that, that for it, if we can, un, if we can unstick this start, this, this, this part of the process, I think the rest will take care of itself largely. Yeah. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. We've got to fix the first part and other elements will, will follow behind. I think my other thought is a little bit with the NIHR and how do we, um, how do we help them think collaboratively about what their capacity is? And, you know, uh, are there opportunities for them to refer patients to other facilities that maybe have more suitable resources to deliver some of the activity for that trial? Now, I'm not suggesting it would be outsource everything, but if there's capacity challenges, if there's location challenges, if there's um, uh, technology challenges, can we look at it in a more collective way and say, OK, start here, but then refer to this area for that or that area for something else and and really make it work rather than just like having this problem of well we only got two patients and then we got stuck because we were bogged down in in things we couldn't control yeah i i think that's really good leona i i, I don't know if the CTANs are going to be designed with that in mind as well james i i mean i think it's a, a good consideration yeah i mean the idea of the CTANs and um is that they embody a new way of doing things, right? And um, if if the vast majority of the recommendations are about kind of lifting the tide, lifting all boats, I was also very conscious that we need some mechanism which is actually about a very different way of doing things, which bakes in that kind of co-design and collaboration, which is inherent in trials between NHS, academia, research charities, uh, industry, CROs, and so on. And it's in a, is aligned to our strategic imperatives, both from the life sciences and health, rather than just being agnostic. Uh, and indeed, therefore have some privileges in how they behave, access to resource uh, approval times and so on. Um, because the, that's how the most dynamic countries think. And that's not how we behave at the moment. And so that's what the CTANs are. Starting small, I'm a believer in a kind of thin end of the wedge approach to policy change when it, you aim it to be radical over time but to try and demonstrate models that show that we can do these things differently, just as we did with the COVID vaccines task force, for example, um, and then build out from there. Yeah, great. Well, I think that takes us um, to the end of our allotted time for today's discussion. Um, I want to thank you all so much for joining me today. I think this has been a really great conversation and um, I'm hoping it brings us one step closer to clinical trial nirvana. Yeah, But again, thank you all. This has been really, really great. Yeah, right. no, I appreciate it. Thanks. Good to see you both. Uh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We upload new episodes every Tuesday. Uh, and join us back here next week when I'll be talking with Lisa Moneymaker and Stephen Pike about current considerations for artificial intelligence and machine learning in clinical trials.